action. Welcome to Torn Stabs with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Josh Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. We are continuing our celebration of 21st century horror as we move on to The Babadook, directed by Duke, Jennifer Duke, Kent. Duke. Babadook. Duke, Duke. <laughs> Amelia's life is in tailspin. She's never gotten over the death of her husband, killed in a car crash, seven years ago. And now her son Samuel, born on the same day as the crash, has a serious behavioural problem. He's constantly building his own weaponry, he's scared of a monster under his bed, and he is deemed a threat to the other students at school. When, as a bedtime story, Amelia reads to Samuel the tale of the Babadook, their lives take a surreal and haunting turn. Are there forces afoot out to attack them, or is the call coming from within the house? Joshua, it would be really mm. stupid of me to ask if you've seen the film, because... I know the Babadook, Duck, Duck thing. <laughs> we saw it together. Oh, did we? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I have no memory of we that. We saw a press screening. We saw a press screening at the Odeon in Leicester Square, the big one with the fancy leopard print seats. Ah, that, well, you've got a better memory than me because I, I knew I'd seen it before, but I couldn't remember who I'd seen it with or if you, indeed you'd seen it. So there we go. So yeah, I'm, did we talk it about packed. it afterwards? Because <laughs> I can't remember that either. Yeah, I mean we've spoken about it throughout the years. It's, this is going back what 2013, 2017. So it's like seven or eight years ago now. 2014, it came out, didn't it? 2014, yeah. yeah. So seven years, the Babadook has been in our lives, and yes, we would have we would have spoken about it. I can't remember if you like it or not. I think probably you do because you wanted to do it for the podcast. <laughs> so yes, that would make sense I to me. I do like it, but I know you liked it at the time. But has your opinion changed over the past seven years? Um, I I did like it the first time around and I never went back to it. I think because, and I really felt this on the second watch. I watched it this morning, obviously, for the podcast. Um, and I couldn't really... F- before I put it on again, I was kind of like, why haven't I watched it again? And then I kind of reacquainted myself with the film and remembered sort of just how harrowing it actually is. You know, the first first hour, I would say, is a steady spiral into sort of like despair. It just gradually cranks up this tension between Amelia and her son Samuel you know, her life is falling apart around her. The house itself is is sort of grey and, and drab. And, you know, it just seems really hopeless. And um, I think that I felt... I, I think I liked the ending more this time around because I could see it for the hopeful, kind of optimistic ending um, that it is. And, um, yeah. Yeah, I think I think I probably still feel the same way. Um, it's still, it is still bleak and upsetting, but I kind of appreciated it a lot more, I think, this time around. How about you? I really like how drab and depressing the whole film is. I really, I really respond to how, <laughs> how shit her life is yeah. and how it's 
and how it sort of it just escalates it starts off so traumatic and it just gets worse because no one's helping her she's completely unsupported the school are only concerned with keeping the other kids safe and her sister is an absolute cock <laughs> she and her is. friends are just like the worst kind of yummy mummy bullshit yeah and also she works in a nursing home so where she's um expected to also be the carer so she's not only having to look after a son who she has very um conflicted feelings about um she also has to look after the elderly in this nursing home even her next door neighbor who's pretty much the only person in the film who's actually nice to her she's even doing stuff to help her you know she takes out the the um the rubbish for her and things like that so she essie really sorry not essie amelia really has nobody to turn to and even when she does, they shoot her down. Like her sister says, oh, I haven't got time for this rubbish at the moment. It's yeah. really bleak. It's so upsetting. But it's so well done. Yeah, it's really believable. Partly that's F- Essie Davis who plays Amelia. She's she's sort of like, as far as I can tell, like makeup free. Her hair isn't, you know, sort of super styled. She just, she looks like she's sleepwalking through her life. She's, she's sort of just so... Um, not really there you know she's almost like a ghost just drifting through her life almost getting annoyed at at everyone who keep trying to you know intrude on her you know her somnambulant existence i suppose well everyone's got an opinion about how she's meant to have moved on but no one's actually given her advice on how to actually do it yeah and seven years really isn't that long especially if you're a single mother you know seven years in um there's no way that she she will have got her life together unless she had a really great support system. And yes, mm. there is this feeling of abandonment that, that goes on there. And also the, her own grief um, over losing her husband, who we kind of, it, it becomes clear very early on that she was sort of absolutely in love with him and, and it seems him with her. So that loss is obviously had such a huge impact on her. It's impossible for her to move on. But why should she move on also? It'd be like it'd be like someone seven years after your mum dies saying, Oh, well, come on, Joshua. <laughs> come on, seven years. It's been it's been, you know, enough. Get yourself time. together. On, stop being silly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, pull yourself together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. It's completely inappropriate. It's not so much about moving on though, is it? I suppose that's like a really um outdated phrase. It's it's sort of more of like starting afresh, you know, creating a new life for yourself that isn't um isn't the same as the one that went before um mm. so i guess it kind of is moving on but not in like a crass way in more of like a okay well that's something that's happened that i had no control over and therefore i'm gonna have to start over again interestingly we don't see anyone else's husbands all those wives <laughs> seem to be filling the void of where their husbands should be and they're filling it with bullshit like shopping or making sure the kid has the best party or um volunteering with poor people yeah so they can they can what's it called on um, it was underprivileged women wasn't it yeah but um virtue signaling so they can virtue signal say well i work with under underprivileged people are they not just doing the same thing yeah their husbands haven't died they're clearly 
I mean, this is what I read into it. They're too busy to deal with their wives. So the wives have to fill their life with some other bullshit. So they're not yeah. that different to Amelia. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But I guess they um, they see her as this like tragic forlorn figure. She's not she's not playing the part. She's not getting involved in the way that they are. You know, they think they've got it sussed. Um, and so she's sort of like shunned and they, they pity her. They very clearly pity her. Is it a wealth thing? Is it because she's piss poor? Yeah, maybe. I know there's, there is a real threat of if she loses her job, what is going to happen to them? Because they're living in this house that mm. she's had, I guess, since um, her husband died. So when she sort of is is too unwell um, to go into work and she has that phone conversation where she's like, yeah, you do that kind of thing. You're like, oh, God, no, don't lose your job because then you really will be mm. absolutely screwed. And, you know, she can't when some when people are being kind to her, like the neighbor next door or the guy at work, she's blind to it. It's almost like she doesn't know how to handle mm. that kind of kindness because she's so it's so alien to her because for seven years, all she's had is people not supporting her, not listening to her. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose I wonder if she feels sort of helpless in the, in the sense that nobody can help her, you know, maybe she she clearly gets that feeling of being pitied from her sister's friends. So I wonder if she just thinks that everybody else is pitying her. She can't believe that, you know, that nice guy at work, um, Daniel Henschel, you just, maybe she just can't believe that they're actually genuinely interested in her well-being, And so she just pushes them away and lumps them in with everybody else. The only person who seems to be able to get through to her in terms of getting help is the doctor. And he kind of just gives in and throws medication her way yeah that's that's such a um i thought that guy was brilliant i don't know um what who the actor was but i think that that guy played that so brilliantly because you can see him looking at her and seeing this woman before him who is clearly um you know at her wit's end and Mm. so he does prescribe her the drugs and he just he kind of says you know this is lots of mothers don't like these drugs um they see it as like a last resort or you know it's got really bad and and she's like yeah it has got really bad but yeah he doesn't he that he gives her drugs um he gives her sedatives to help her son sleep but he doesn't offer her anything she goes away completely unaided whatsoever really is that her putting the blame onto samuel that oh he is the cause of my problem yeah yeah definitely and i think that's definitely the undercurrent of that scene is um, he buys in, the doctor buys into that as well. You know, he just thinks that she's sleep deprived because, and she's, you know, worried because of her, her son's behavior. Um, So yeah, there's definitely that kind of, it's just, it's the son's responsibility. He's the reason that she is the way that she is. And that's obviously a huge um, part of this film is their relationship and I think I think it's done brilliantly. I think if there's if there's any film that is going to put you off ever having kids, I think this is that film. Uh, which may be a bit unfair because actually Samuel does a lot of stuff that's really sweet, and he says that he wants to rescue his mum, and he's he cares about his mum. He loves her until the end. You know, I love you always, and he's actually really sweet. But when there are the moments when he's acting out, oh my god, it's actually sort of the most horrifying thing in the film <laughs> but i i don't see him as acting out i think he's the one with his head screwed on yeah completely completely right you know you get this in the in comedies you know you get this in um 
like uh was that ryan gosling for the good guys you know he's a mess but the daughter nice guys. is so headstrong the nice guys you get it in desperate housewives with julie and susan delfino or myers as they were then you know julie mm-hmm. is basically having to look after having to be the parent <laughs> for the mum usually it's played for comedy yeah. here it's played for for trauma for complete horror you yeah. know he he can sense that there is something afoot so he's building machinery he's building weaponry rather he's the one who wants to protect the mum and he's the one who first sees the babadook like that scene in the car when he's looking off to the side because the babadook is in the car and only he can see the babadook and he's screaming get out get out get out get out bloody get out oh yeah yeah great girl get out get out <laughs> and then he sort of has his 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 seizure where he yeah he's like he passes out are there links here to we need to talk about kevin and hereditary yes I, that's exactly what i was going to say because samuel the kid is basically nancy from nightmare on elm street and um oh <laughs> and um and the mother amelia is in ba- what way well because nancy's the one who's like don't fall asleep. You fell asleep, you idiot. Like she's the one who's really proactively trying to fix the problem, which is what Samuel's doing. You know, he's he's fully aware of this presence in their house and he's mm. he's trying to get his mum to believe him and she won't because he's a kid. And similarly with Nancy, you know, she's trying to get everyone to believe her and they don't because she's 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 also a kid. And she's shouldering the trauma yeah. caused by the parents in Elm Street and he's shouldering the trauma that mm-hmm. Amelia hasn't dealt with and therefore hasn't protected him from. Yeah, it can't be it can't be a coincidence that the Babadook has those clawed fingers like Freddy Krueger. It seems like mm. almost like a them, you know, thematic the imagery is thematically linked to a Nightmare on Elm Street. But also I think Amelia is very similar to the mother in um when you talk about Kevin, where she mm. doesn't want to have the baby she doesn't like the baby she's sick of it you know she she um she'd rather go and stand next to you know a pneumatic drill than listen to her baby crying um and i think that that's that's something that jennifer kent has talked about which is she says you know i'm not saying we all want to kill our kids but a lot of women struggle and the she says um, it's a very taboo subject to say that motherhood is anything but a perfect experience for women. Um, mm-hmm. So that there's definitely a link between this film and we need to talk about Kevin as well, I think. I love watching parents threatening their children through gritted teeth in supermarkets because the child just <laughs> won't behave and the parent doesn't want to cause a scene. But the energy, you feel it, and that just makes you just makes your eyes dart over like boy someone's gonna lose it (laughs) um i don't think amelia is as cold as tilda swinton's character tilda swinton doesn't show the children any affection whereas amelia even though you know in moments when she realizes that she might have gone too far she apologizes and she shows affection and she reads the kid the bedtime story she she genuinely cares about Samuel. Yeah. And I think that's where it's different because she's, she's trying, but I think that the big specter in this film is depression and 
obviously grief. And I think that those two things keep pulling them apart. So she's she's trying to do the picture-perfect mum thing. But on her side of things, the, the depression that she's clearly in the grip of is really sort of preventing her from functioning in, in a lot of ways and, and being sort of the mother that Samuel wants her to be. But then at the same time, Samuel's kind of talking about this monster he keeps seeing. Um, and so that's another sort of thing that's keeping them apart. So, yeah, she does try, but it's almost like the circumstances won't allow her to to be, you know, inverted commas, a good mum. Kids pick up when they're when parents are behaving in a certain way. They pick up on trauma, whether they know it consciously or not. Mm. You know, it will come out in therapy years later. <laughs> they will, <laughs> they will pick up on it. So it's obviously very overt that Samuel is very aware that there is a, a presence in the house. Is the house haunted? I think it's haunted by um, by Amelia. I think she's the thing haunting it. Um, it's, you know, the house... Jennifer Kent has talked about how the house has... You know, she wanted the film to be black and white. It, they decided not to do that. Um, and they ended up using these very muted colours. That's, colors so, and that's so strange. Because I, oh, yeah. I was just thinking, this is basically a black and white film that just so happens to be in colour. Because I... yeah. I remember it in black and white. I don't remember it in colour because huh. it's so muted. It feels like a black and white film from the 20s or the 30s. It feels very expressionistic. It really does. And that, that was one of her big inspirations was German expressionism. And if you watch the 2005 short film that she made called Monster, which sort of inspired this film, that that short film is shot in black and white. And it looks it really looks like it was... Um, shot in the 20s you know it genuinely has that slightly sort of like um, sort of like slightly blurred so you know overexposed lighting but deep deep shadows um, close-ups on the faces it's um, it's beautiful like I can see why she would have wanted to do the Babadook in that exact same style but I can also see that maybe that wouldn't have been commercially viable for you know the masses that don't necessarily want to watch an hour and a half in black and white if it's not um a french musical <laughs> whatever it was the artist <laughs> cut forward to the lighthouse oh uh, yeah i mean that robert pattinson anyone will go watch him won't they <laughs> especially if he's yeah i don't know and actually, <laughs> moving on and actually from, um, from the look of it the new batman film the batman looks black and white even though it's shot in color and Batman is perfect for black and white. Oh, really? Like I've always said, if I had the chance to make a Batman film, I would just adapt The Long Halloween and make it as a black and white noir, like a 1940s, 1950s, mm. you know, flavoured noir. Um, the mm. house in this film has a Overlook Hotel flair to it. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, Kubrick is all over this film, that kind of sparse um, atmosphere, you know, sparse but full of atmosphere, um weird weird vibes not really sure if anything's going to come flying out the wardrobe or not it doesn't go quite as overt as the shining but that threat is definitely there you 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 kind of think it could do that at any moment and it kind of does a little bit you know when she sees her husband in the bedroom and his head gets sliced off like that's probably the most shining it gets i'd say i would say that's more a razor head 
Those flourishes. Oh, okay. There is a lot of David Lynch flourishes in here. The sort of snapping, in yeah. focus, uh, quivering imagery. The the way that Jennifer Kent frames the bedroom symmetrically. Yes, that's Kubrick, but the way that it's black and white and lit looks like a stage to a dark space, and that looks just like yeah. the razor head, like when they go into the radiator and you've got the woman who lives in the radiator with the, <laughs> the hairy mutton chops and she's like in heaven everything is good or something like that and the way that the head slices and he falls it it feels very physically david lynch and the way that, sm- that at times there's smoke billowing but in reverse it feels yeah. very you know the horror end of david lynch and he does that quite a lot in things like lost mm. highway and um amazing sequences in in any of the twin peaks episodes and wild at heart mm. well she that's her favorite director lynch. she said jennifer kent that david lynch is her hello number one. Yeah. jennifer kent i am with <laughs> you there kubrick and lynch are my favorites is this a horror i think it's a horror in the same way that hereditary is a horror I think that I don't think we would have Hereditary without this film, actually. I think this was sort of like the um, the Watergate moment where suddenly you could make a horror film that was emotionally, as emotionally terrifying as it is, you know, overtly, you know, uh, in like a typical kind of genre way. Um, so I think it is a horror film because there, there's, there is... There is horror imagery, hugely, but I think it's a different kind of horror where it's very much about the the emotional trauma of a family basically sort of broken apart and dealing with the, the you know, the long-term fallout of the loss that they've experienced. And also, you know, the, the weird way it, it impacts the relationship between Amelia and her son where she, he was born the day that her husband died and she's clearly sort of um projecting that onto him she never wants to celebrate his birthday on his birthday he has to share his birthday with his cousin um to the point where you know at the end spoilers he celebrates his seventh birthday I think and it's like the first time he celebrated his birthday mm. properly on his birthday so I think it's the horror of loss. It's the horror of depression and grief and people not having a way, not, not knowing how to um, get themselves out of it. You know? It does feel like a, a genuinely accurate, although stylized account of anxiety and depression and trauma. And it feels, of all the films that we've covered so far in this series it does feel like the closest experience to real life. Oh yeah, like watching it this morning, um, having had my own spells of depression over the years, I actually, I felt really hot all over. I felt sort of like I wanted to turn it off. I wanted to fast forward it. Um, and it was almost like, you know, how you you have, um, uh, what's it called? Response prevention therapy, where you... Um, 
you know, it's exposure therapy where you expose yourself to the things that you're afraid of. Oh, like the, um, and, the Ludovico you know, treatment you, you have in to like, Black Orange. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Where I was like, just sit with the anxiety, <laughs> sit with how uncomfortable this is making you feel and it's going to be fine. And that did, it worked because by the end I was, I felt really uplifted by it because it is, I think it is an uplifting narrative in the, in the, in the telling of it because at the end, She's overcome her demons. She hasn't erased mm. her demon. She hasn't killed her demon. She's living with it. She's literally <laughs> living with her demon. And uh, she knows that she has to tend to it. And she can't deny it. She can't ignore it. She should keep it away from her son mm -hmm. the best she can. Um, but it's always going to be there. And I think that's such a positive depiction of dealing with a life with depression and anxiety. Yeah. I mean, there's that, that line the, in the actual book of the Babadook, the more you deny, the stronger I get. So the mm. only way that she could possibly let me in the Babadook is once she hits rock bottom, she has to realize, do I either vanquish the trauma or let it destroy me? So she stops denying. Mm. Yeah. And the only... The moment that brings her to is her son stroking her yeah. face. You know, just that completely selfless love that he has for her. She's basically throttling him, trying mm. to kill him. And he brings her around. You know, he's he reminds her of who she can be if she can sort of release her... Is it like a dependency? Like, is she, like, has she become dependent on this depression? You know, it's... I don't think she has like a codependent relationship with her depression. Because normally you would use other things in your life as a way to ignore the depression. I think Samuel touching her face just centers her, reminds her that this thing that is huge and also has possessed her by that point in the film isn't the be all and end all mm. there is actually the kid and she can have something outside of the depression and that's what allows her to sick up the liquid babadook she mm. sicks up all that black ink doesn't yeah. she and it's quite a yeah it's quite a, a violent spew of of black ink or maybe blood Bile. you know maybe maybe that's a, a black and white element to the film that if it was a black and white film, mm. then the, the blood would have been, you know, really inky colour, kind of like in the lighthouse with, you know, the clay type mm. faces. It, but it could be ink because obviously they have the yeah. book. So it could be, you know, representing the book as well. Yeah, because the book, I mean, the book, the book feels sort of inky and charcoal-y, doesn't it? Kind of, you know, not too dissimilar mm -hmm. to the illustrations in Matt Glasby's The Book of Fear. Oh, yeah. Mm. Linking it back to our first episode. <laughs> but I do like, you know, she can't delete or erase the past. She has to deal with it. It's it's never mm. going to be gone. It's all, the past is always going to be there. She has to deal with it. So she has to keep it close by and understand yeah. that I've got to feed it worms every now and then, but I'm in control. It doesn't control mm. me. Yeah. So do you think that Samuel is the one who conjures the Babadook. No, I don't think Samuel conjures the Babadook. It's that line, again, the 
the more you deny, the stronger I get. I think she's been denying everything for so long that kind of like, I nearly said Freddie Mercury. It's not Freddie Mercury. Like Freddie Krueger. <laughs> Very different people. Like Freddie Krueger. <laughs> Slightly different he needs, people. You know, the Babadook and Freddie need that, that, you know, Freddie needs the fear of the Elm Street kids to come back. Because he even says that at the beginning of um, Freddy vs. Jason. If no one's afraid, or the, I can't yeah. come back if no one's afraid. But with the Babadook, if you deny, then the Babadook gets more powerful, which is the complete flip to the bye-bye man. Because if you say the bye-bye man, or if you believe <laughs> in the bye-bye man, the bye-bye man gets stronger. So but she bye. has been denying and ignoring for so long that the Babadook has been growing in strength to the point where it's able to manifest in the real world outside of her head. That book came from nowhere. Mm. She doesn't know where that book came from. It was just on the shelf. And then when yeah. she, she ripped it up and threw it away, like Mary Poppins and the letter, it came back. <laughs> I guess I just found it interesting that they made samuel into like a a little magician and i know that kids do magic and stuff like that but i just felt that they kept bringing it back and they kept doing things so at the end he conjures a white dove which is obviously like a symbol of peace and and harmony so i just wondered if that was telling us that he, he kind of inadvertently conjured this out of his mother because then she had to deal with it oh that's a very good point He's seen the way that she's behaving. He's seen her her depression and her grief and how it's consuming her. So does he sort of, without even maybe even meaning to, actually bring it out of her and manifest it into something that they can fight together? Well, if he does, he does it off camera before the film starts. <laughs> yeah. Because we don't see him yeah, we don't conjure see anything because he's already concerned about the monster from the get-go yeah but he's been living with it his whole life yeah he has been living with his whole life and maybe only now he's becoming conscious of it or half conscious Mm. of it because he's really resilient he's really Mm. tough so where does he get his toughness from oh he's like his dad isn't he but his dad is his dad like it is tough we're told numerous times that samuel is just like his dad Yeah, but that's just things you know everyone says he's a straight talker No one ever wants to talk ill of the Mm. dead. So they're like, oh, yes, you're just like your dad. Your dad was very, very tough. You know, in death, everyone's bad points get pushed to the side, which I think is a really dangerous way to remember people because you're not remembering them as real people. You're just remembering them as martyrs, as idolized people. Mm. I want to remember people for their arsehole sides as well. Warts and all. Otherwise, they're not yeah. real people. Well, is that is that something that Amelia has done? Is she's she has sort of deified her husband? She thinks that everything would be absolutely brilliant if he was around. Yeah, but obviously, we have no way to prove that that would be true or not. Or even if they would still be together. Yeah, exactly. Like they, he could have hated having a kid that, and left. But that's part you of never grief, know. isn't it? You, if you lose, yeah someone it's not just the fact that they are gone the life that you were going to have that's gone as well you know it's like a breakup you have to mourn the future that you were going to have with that person whether they're divorcing Mm -hmm. you or whether they've died in a car crash 
So of course, yeah, I guess it's tied in because you're never going to say, well, I'm not happy he, he, she, them is dead. I'm not happy about that at all. But they were really shitty when it came to making plans or this and the other because then that would impact mm. on your memory of the life that you are now unable to let go of. Did you find it scary? I, no, I wasn't scared. But then not many horror films actually scare me. Mm. I can be thrilled by them, like the craft of it or what I'm watching, but genuine fright? No. Were you? Well, because William Freakin, director mm-hmm. of The Exorcist, he said, I've never seen a more terrifying film. It will scare the hell out of you as it did me. And I just feel like it wasn't really about being mm. scary. I didn't find it scary at all. I found it sort of like effective and I found it atmospheric and oppressive and moving and all those things but i didn't really find it scary maybe there's a difference of watching something at home because i watched it on bbc iplayer and watching it in the cinema in the dark maybe there weren't that many people in the screen when billy freaking saw it because i could imagine something like this <laughs> yeah. would be quite terrifying if you're on your own in the dark at the cinema yeah Oh, that just reminds me of watching... Did you ever watch Lights Out? No, never heard it's of decent. it. It's decent. It's worth watching. It's um, it's by... I think it's by the guy who did Shazam. And he did an Annabelle film. I think it's the same director. But it's Teresa Palmer versus a ghost that only... A, I think it's a ghost. Anyway, it's a, I can't remember. But she's, she's up against this kind of entity that only shows up when the lights are off. <laughs> and I watched it on my own in a screening room i couldn't see the door i couldn't see any way to actually leave the room and it scared the shit out of me (laughs) there's definitely a a, a mindset you know i saw censor recently and there was a jump scare in that film that genuinely made my body tingle the the adrenaline pumped through my body so quickly my i felt my body tingle i i'm not sure if i would have had that same effect (laughs) at home there's definitely something about seeing yeah. something on the big screen and also something that's made for the big screen. I think the Babadook, you know, the shots are constructed and the sound design is so... It all leans towards it should be viewed in the cinema screening room. Do you view the Babadook as a ghost? No, I don't. I I think that the Babadook is like the manifestation of something very human, um but I don't think it's like a dead person. You know, I, I'm sure you could build in a backstory. Oh yeah, by the way, Jennifer Kent does own the rights to the sequel. Oh. You know, she has any kind of like sequel rights and she says, it doesn't matter how much money anybody gives me, I am never going to make a sequel because it's not that kind of movie. Good. And I'm like, yes, respect. Because we don't need to find out that the Babadook was a magician in the yeah. 30s. You know, we don't need to find out any of the backstory stuff because the Babadook is something that was specific to Amelia and her son. And it was, you know, it was a manifestation of their shared trauma, I think. Yeah, Blumhouse would have ground this into the ground, basically. This would have been sequelized to Mm -hmm. buggery. I think the Babadook can be considered somewhat of a ghost. I don't, I don't Mm. think the, I don't think the Babadook is the spirit of someone that lived 
but it's definitely the manifestation mm. of the trauma the anxiety and it's taken physical form so it's it's almost a ghost of her mindset it's yeah and in a way that's subversive yeah because usually ghosts yeah, it's great. are beings that have something left you know they they've got unfinished business with the living amelia has unfinished business with the dead she can't move on from her yeah. husband she can't move on from the life so it it, it feels like a, yeah. a, a, a subversive ghost story yeah yeah it definitely plays with that kind of imagery as well you know when the babadook first appears he moves like something out of a yeah. j-horror he's like Judd, like the judder man Do you remember the judder man no. <laughs> from is it like the smirnoff ice adverts the judder man is coming <laughs> No. Am I making this Maybe. up? <laughs> In fact, those CGI bits, those CGI bits where the Babadook is on the ceiling, those are my least favourite. I don't, I don't, it feels out of place. Yeah. I prefer, much prefer the smoke and mirrors yeah. of, of what looks like in-camera effects. I don't need CGI. Well, I think it was in-camera, but I think um, it was sort of smoothed out too much. So in the, in Monster, the short film that, that precedes this it actually moves the, the creature looks very similar to the babadook and it moves very mm. similarly but weirdly it's more effective because that film looks so completely like it was made in the 20s that it doesn't seem incongruous that this sort of like juddering creature just like speeds up the stairs where did you watch the short film you can watch it on vimeo oh, i'm going to look on vimeo it's available on I'm vimeo going to look on the vimeo yeah do it it's really good it's it's interesting actually because you can see how the 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 monster um, clearly inspired the Babadook mm. itself, but actually it's al- it almost represents something else in the short film. It's like the mythology of the the feature film completely changed what the the Babadook a- actually represents. Well, it's ten years in between. So it's right? quite interesting. Ten thing years to watch. in between the short and the feature, so it could be that yeah, just about Jennifer nine years. Kent had a life experience that completely changed the meaning for her. Well, she said that um, when she made Monster, she'd heard a story about a friend's little girl who said that she could see something in their house. And so her friend, I think it was her friend, sort of like play acted banishing the monster in order to convince the kid that it was gone. And Jennifer Kent thought, ah, but okay, but what if the monster was real? Mm. So that was the inspiration for Monster. But then Uh. I think... The Babadook, she read a story about like a really awful true life incident where a husband like took his daughter to a bridge and threw her off or something like, you know, something really, really quite terrible. And I think Jennifer Kent started wondering, this is a human being, what has pushed him this far? What's pushed him to the point where he would um, kill his child? And I think that fed into this, this film, which is very much about you know, God, what is she going to do to her kid? Because she doesn't seem to like him very much. And actually, she almost seems to hate him. <laughs> so, yeah, there's very two different inspirations, I think, even though they share um, a monster. Can the Babadook be considered the first of this elevated horror thread genre that we've been experiencing over the past, what, five, six, seven years? I can't think of anything that was before it, Um sort of it within the 21st century horror bracket. I can't think of anything that 
preceded it actually i think this like this was huge this was like a really big indie hit it came out of sundance um it had it was like modestly successful in australia it's where it you know where jennifer kent is from but um but it didn't it did better overseas so i think it was maybe the first more art housey horror that went quite as Mm. big as this i'm sure there were other films that did sort of similar types of things but they weren't as as impactful i think there's definite links between this and saint maud and censor and the witch as well the witch came you know a few years later and it was about families Mm. breaking apart it was about isolation and female perspectives um so i think that this sort of set the ball rolling in a lot of ways yeah yeah i can see the links there i just think visually there's visual links between the babadook saint maud and censor and it's 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 definitely Mm. a david lynch thing they've just got uh they've got uh, yeah it just feels like they are connected tonally and visually whereas the witch Mm. i think because it's not set in contemporary times um it's a little bit outside of that would you watch the babadook again um i think that i would probably leave it for a while i find it really heavy i find it it's almost too effective <laughs> it's kind of you know it's it's really really uncomfortable for the first, for pretty much the entire film and you know you get such a sense of spiraling into doom and such a realistic slash heightened depiction of depression that i would i would have to be in a really 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 happy place to watch it in order for it not to affect so you're me. never going to watch it again then <laughs> yeah That was The Babadook, directed by Jennifer Kent. Joshua, give us a clue as to what's coming up in our next episode. It's our annual Halloween special, and uh, we're going thriple. Thriple? Is that, is that a good enough thriple clue? Thriple and thrice. We're going thriple. Thriple and thrice, and all and things all nice. Things nice. That's the Babadook. <laughs> Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast so you don't miss that episode. And you can find us on Twitter at TornStubsPod. What did you think of the Babadook? Are you afraid to read books ever again? Uh, let us know. We are off to find it in a book. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Josh Winning. Duck, duck, duck.